0: Welcome to everyone and those who are watching online. So glad you were here. Last week, we started a new teaching series on the book of 1 Corinthians. It's technically not a book. It's a letter the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to answer some of their questions, but also to bring significant correction. The church at Corinth was kind of a mess it was being influenced in significant ways by the culture it was living in. As one scholar put it, Corinth was sort of like the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. All in what? It was, it was a city filled with greed and consumerism and lust and sexual immorality and a lot of relational tension and division. Just like our cultural context today where the cultural values of greed and sex and power are infiltrating and influencing followers of Jesus and his church. So I believe God wants to use this letter in a significant way in our lives. So last week we saw how even though that the church was a mess, Paul begins the letter in a very inspiring way by giving them and us a vision for the kind of life God wants us to be living, a life of of spiritual and relational and emotional wholeness, holiness, wholeness, right? Even in the messes of our lives, God is calling us to be restored and to be whole, and he's given us the resources to do that through his grace. So that's what we talked about last week. But in verse 10, the kid gloves kind of come off. Um, Paul begins to focus on one of the specific messes, one of the many, uh, but the, the, one of the many messes, one specific one in that church. So let's look at this passage, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you'd be perfectly united in mind and thought My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so after the glowing introduction we looked at last week, Paul then jumps right into a specific problem in the the church at Corinth. And the problem has to do with their relationships with some relational division and conflict that are happening in that church. And it's interesting to me that with all the problems that are going on in this church, of all the problems going on, this is the topic Paul chooses to address first, which tells us something really important. Our ability to get along with one another is at the top of God's priority list. So Paul starts with this critically important issue of relational health within the church. Okay, so what exactly is going on relationally in this church? Well, let's look and see. Look again at the beginning of verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. See, Paul has received word from someone in the know, Chloe, in her household, that there is quarreling, there's arguing going on in the church, there are these relational conflicts that are happening. And Paul tells us what these conflicts are all about. Look at verse 12. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, what's happening is that some people in the church there in Corinth, they're aligning themselves with particular leaders in the movement. So some are saying, hey, I follow Paul. And others are saying, I follow Apollos. And another group is saying, I follow Cephas. And then there are always those in the group who say, well, I follow Jesus. Anyway, okay. Um, So who are these people? Now, we know who Paul is. We know who Jesus is. Cephas is another name for Peter, who was obviously a critical leader in the early church. So we know those guys. But Paul also mentions Apollos. So who is Apollos? Apollos was a very gifted evangelist and leader in the early church. And he was a friend of Paul's. So after Paul spent time in Corinth, Apollos went there to help out. In fact, if we jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see Paul talking in more detail. He kind of continues this dialogue about this situation. He talks about Apollos. Look at this. What after all, this is chapter 3, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. See, so so Paul started the church in Corinth. And at some point, Paul left, and Apollos came along. Again, I don't know if, if Paul was there and they were there at the same time. But, but Paul started the church, and then Apollos came along, and he watered the seed that Paul had sown. So it was sort of like the church at Corinth got a new pastor. It was Paul initially... And then it was Apollos. Now we don't know how long Apollos stayed in Corinth, but he obviously had a had a, a very positive influence uh, on that church. And, and again, he and, he and Paul were friends. There was no competition between them. They were both focused on helping this church grow spiritually. But now Paul is hearing word that the people in the church are choosing to align themselves. With one of these leaders, and not in a healthy way, but in an unhealthy way, suddenly there is this competition going on about which leader and whose leader is best. So there are now these factions, there are these tribes that have begun to form in this church of 50 to 100 people. And it's creating this division, it's creating this quarreling between these factions, between these groups, Okay, so what exactly are they quarreling about? That's a really important question. And many people, many of us automatically assume that they're quarreling over theological differences, like Paul's view of baptism, for instance, compared to what Apollos taught about baptism. But look, as far as I can tell, and just studying this passage, as far as I can tell, that's not what's going on here. I mean, they do have some theological differences that we're gonna see a little later in the book, but that doesn't seem to be the issue here. What's going on here seems to be this sort of fan club situation. It's this fan club situation. Whose leader is the best? Again, look at chapter 3. Jump ahead just to chapter 3. Paul says, for since there is jealousy, it's really important, there's jealousy and quarreling among you, Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not mere human beings? Notice, Paul says, there is jealousy and quarreling among you about these things. This isn't about theological disagreements. You don't have jealousy about theological disagreements, This is about people aligning themselves personally with one of these leaders in such a way that people are starting to choose tribes. This is like a competition. This is a fan club situation. I can only imagine. Oh, Apollos, he is so funny and handsome. I I love how those shirts just make his biceps pop, you know? But Paul, I don't know, Paul seems kind of frumpy. Um, And I I don't know, he just, Paul's so intense. I, I don't really connect with him. But Apollos, oh man, yeah. See, people in this church, they'd attach themselves to certain leaders in an unhealthy way, taking their focus off of Christ. And this has resulted in these factions, these tribes, these cliques within the church that are quarreling and they're jealous of one another. Okay, now even though we might not relate to this specific issue, Um, What we can relate to is the reality of personal conflicts and quarreling that often happens in churches. See, conflict is a normal part of church life. If there's conflict, it means we're alive. It doesn't mean we're in trouble. It's normal, right? The key issue is how we deal with conflicts when they happen. Not if, when they happen. See, the, the way we respond when conflicts happen will determine whether or not the church is going to be divided, whether there's going to be division in the church or whether the church will result and um, have a deeper experience of unity, of relational health. It's all about how we respond to conflict. So in this passage, Paul describes three specific ways or things that we can do to minimize division And instead, cultivate relational health and wholeness. First, it is critically important that we right-size our preferences. We right-size our preferences. This is such a huge issue that we are often completely unaware of, and yet it can do huge amounts of damage. As I mentioned a moment ago, when the people in the Corinthian church were saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, they were expressing a personal preference. This was not about who's right and who's wrong or who's biblical and who's not. No, this was about people who felt a certain chemistry or connection with one of these leaders, which is totally fine. It is totally normal for that to happen. The problem, however, was that they were, listen up, they were elevating their personal preferences to a measurement of spiritual maturity, of spiritual status, which is no bueno, okay? That's what causes the division. It's not about people having different opinions or different preferences. That happens all the time. Some people in our church prefer KJ's preaching. Some people prefer MIT. Well, it doesn't matter, right? That just happens. That's a normal part of just personalities and all of that. Totally normal. That's not what this is about. This is about people elevating their preferences so that anyone who disagrees with them is viewed as being spiritually immature. That's when division happens. For example, for decades, there has been this worship war between hymns and choruses, okay? Some people say, I like hymns because hymns are so theologically deep. And others say, I like choruses because they touch my heart in a real way. And both of those statements are personal preferences. Neither is more or less biblical. They are both real for each person saying it. The problem arises when we begin to attach a spiritual maturity level onto this issue. For instance, someone says hymns are so much better than choruses because they, they have real theology, not this you know, feelings, wishy-washy stuff. Do you see what just happened? Someone elevated their preference so that hymns now, in their view, are more biblically sound than choruses. But I can think of some hymns that have very questionable theology. Okay, Uh, and this, of course, goes both ways. Someone says, hymns are so dull and boring. They are all head and no heart. Look, they may feel boring to you, but to many people, they touch their hearts in a deep, significant way. Do you see how our personal preference can suddenly become a dividing wall when it doesn't need to be? You like hymns for their deep theology? Awesome. You like choruses because of how they touch your heart? Awesome. Let's celebrate our differences rather than demonizing and dividing with our statements by making our preferences suddenly a marker or a measurement of spiritual maturity. And this applies in so many areas um, in the church. I remember a few years ago, someone complaining to me, about the lighting levels in our sanctuary during worship. And look, our our lighting system is 20 years old. It is so out of date. We we have struggles, we have huge challenges. Okay, but anyway, they were sharing about how it felt way too dark in the sanctuary when we were singing or whatever, just felt too dark. And I said, hey, thank you for sharing your opinion. I really value your input. But they didn't stop there. They, they weren't done. Then they went on to quote scripture about how God is light and in him there is no darkness. And I'm like, hold it, hold it. It is totally fine. It is totally fine for you to not like the lighting levels in our sanctuary and, and, and to share that with me. That is totally cool. I welcome it. But don't quote scripture to make your point. As if any darkened room is inherently evil. I mean, let's just admit, this is a personal preference issue. This is not a biblical issue. See, I mean, look, if, if you don't connect as well with one of our teaching team... Or maybe you didn't connect with a particular sermon one week or, or a song that we do or, or a worship service that we did or a small group or whatever. Look, it's totally understandable if you didn't connect with it. But don't make that a biblical issue or a spiritual maturity issue or even worse, an integrity issue. Implying that anyone who disagrees with you has some deficiencies in their character. No, it is simply an issue of personal preference. That's it. It's normal, it's good, and it doesn't have to be divisive. But when we elevate our personal preference, our preferences to an indicator of spiritual maturity, that creates unnecessary division. Now look, sometimes... Legitimate church divisions happen over significant moral or, or, or theological issue, like the deity of Christ or whatever. I, I'm not saying that never happens. So I'm, sometimes there is a division over, you know, moral issues, you know, deity of Christ, that kind of thing. These, these core foundational theological issues. But I wonder how many times churches have divided or split Over issues that were ultimately about personal preference. And instead of humbly acknowledging that, people chose to denigrate and demonize those who had a different personal preference than them. Okay, so this is this is a huge, this is a specific thing we can do to foster relational health in the body of Christ. We've got a right size. Our preferences. We've got to understand our preferences are not these biblical things, all right? They're just preferences, okay? Which leads to a second crucial thing that we can do, all of us can do, to minimize division and cultivate relational health, and that is to be careful with our words. So often, our words... Create division and relational barriers. That's what Paul's describing here. Look again at verse 19. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say. (laughs) These quarrels are happening in the Corinthian church because of what people are saying. Some say, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Apollos. See, what was lighting this fire of quarreling in this church was the words that were coming out of their mouths. Had they not said anything about who they were following, I'm guessing the division would have been significantly diminished. Or, Had they just changed the way they were saying these things? What if the Corinthians had changed their language to, you know, boy, I really loved Apollos' servants. I mean, I so appreciate his ministry here. And another person says, that's great. I personally really connected with Paul. I loved his depth and his intensity. No division, no quarreling, just a celebrating of our differences of opinion. Where we get into trouble is when our words sow seeds of differences of opinion. They sow seeds of negativity. They sow seeds of criticism, not just differences of opinion. Our words sow seeds of negativity and criticism. And that seems to be what's happening in Corinth. When someone says, I follow Paul, in this black and white sort of way, there was an implicit criticism of those who felt more connected to Apollos. It was sort of a superiority thing. And look, I I think it's really helpful to think of the words we speak as seeds we are sowing. We think, oh, I just just said a word and it just kind of dissolved in the atmosphere. No, unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Every word we speak is a seed that gets sown into the heart and the mind of anyone who happens to hear us they get planted in the hearts of the people we are speaking to and depending on the words we use they either bring forth life-giving fruit or noxious weeds what seed are you and I planting what seeds are we planting i think of Paul's words in Ephesians 4:29 just provides such awesome counsel do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. What an amazing and powerful filter to use before speaking. Are my words, that I'm about to say, are my words gonna build others up Are my words gonna benefit anyone who's listening? And if not, why say them? (laughs) Why sow seeds of distrust or negativity or criticism into the hearts of people around us? Now I'm gonna get real, I'm gonna get a little specific here, and, and this will be all right, I think. But one of the ways I see this dynamic happening within the body of Christ is this tendency to put a label on other Christ followers. See, it's the flip side of this I follow Paul dynamic. It's just the flip side of that, where we say they follow so and so. Can you believe that? We, we put a label on them. And one of the examples of this that I'm hearing a lot these days in the larger body of Christ is this label of woke. Woke. Someone recently told me, oh, we left our church because our pastor was going woke. And when I tried to explore what they meant by that, I I, I think what they were saying basically was they felt like their pastor was doing too many sermons on racism. Now look, I can totally understand people feeling that their pastor may be too focused on a particular subject. I mean, we're human. As pastors, we get passionate about things. Or, you know, we read a book and we you know, let's do a series on this or whatever. So I totally understand people, you know, feeling like a pastor is just too focused on a particular subject. And I totally understand people may disagree with certain things that a pastor is saying from the pulpit. That's normal. We're not going to agree on everything. But to then put this loaded bucket-sized, catch-all, woke label onto that person. And in doing so, implying all sorts of negative things about their heart or their integrity or their biblical credibility or whatever, that's not helpful. It is unfair and it is divisive. The pastors that I have talked, that I've heard described, not talked to, some some I have, but the pastors that I've heard, in this other case, I did know the pastor they were talking about, the pastors that I've heard described as being woke are some of the most, and this is just my personal circle of people that told me they're woke or whatever, they are some of the most godly, humble Jesus-loving, biblically-rooted leaders I know. Do I agree with every aspect of their theology? No, nor do they 100% agree with my theology. Who has perfect theology? Only one person I know, Jesus, right? The rest of us are just trying our best to seek him and follow him. This is Paul's point in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, this this is not about Paul or about Alan or about whatever pastor we follow. This is about Jesus who was crucified for us. So let's let him be who we align our hearts and lives with, realizing that we won't have perfect theology until we get to heaven. Look, we... We don't need more spoken words that label and tear down other Christians. There is more than enough of that happening on YouTube, and it makes my stomach turn. But I, I told myself I wasn't going to go off on that, and I'm not going to. I'm going to be disciplined here. Look, sure, we can, we can uh, disagree, and we can have concerns about teacher, whatever. We can have concerns. But here's the question. How are we going about disagreeing? How are we doing that? Are we just attaching a label, a bucket-sized label? Oh, this person is, Or are we actually doing this, disagreeing, in, in, in a way that creates more understanding rather than more factions and more tribes and more division? Which leads to a third critical thing that we must do to create relational health rather than division. And it it is to discern together. We all know from our own culture, we all know what happens when factions and cliques and tribes start being formed. What happens in our culture when factions and cliques and tribes start being formed? We know what happens. People stop talking to people from the other tribe. (laughs) That's what happens. People stop talking to people in other groups. We stop listening to other people's perspective. And, I mean, this is just the social media algorithms, and you, you can find out, but, but you, know, you know how this works. The social media al- algorithms, when we're on social media, they are looking at what we're searching, and they're looking at the articles we're reading and the podcast, they're looking at all of that, and guess what the algorithms doing it is just feeding us the things that that confirm our bias, this is confirmation bias. They they are feeding us our side intentionally so that it's all about money. They're doing it to get money from us ultimately. But what happens is we soon end up in an echo chamber where we're only hearing voices like us. That's our culture as a whole unfortunately, the same thing, the same dynamic happens in the church as well. So look again at what Paul says, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another what you say, we looked at that, and that there be no divisions among you, talked about that, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, this word translated perfectly united, it's a great word. It is a word, that was often used to talk about repairing or restoring something. This is the word that Mark uses in Mark chapter 1 to talk about the disciples repairing their fishing nets. I love that image. It speaks of an environment where relationships can be restored and mended through the power of the gospel. Okay, now Paul uses two words here to describe this process. That you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Okay, first word, mind, that refers to the central core part of us that houses our affections, our emotions, our thoughts. That's how Paul often used the word mind. It's kind of like our heart. And this word thought refers to judgment or discernment. See, what Paul is describing is a process in which in the context of relationship, we are sharing our thoughts and our emotions and our opinions. We're sharing them. And then we're moving towards a place of discernment and agreement. We're moving together towards a place of discernment and agreement. See, this is how unity and trust are established. This is how divided relationships get mended and restored. It's through honest conversations where each person is allowed the opportunity to share their perspective. And in that safe place where they're able to share their perspective, suddenly what happens is both people are sharing their perspective. There's this place of mutual understanding And prayerful discernment, and in that mutual understanding and prayerful discernment, a pathway for unity is created. So rather than labeling someone as woke or whatever, what if we actually talked with them about what they believe and think? What what if we expressed our concerns and let them respond? And let me say this. Maybe I shouldn't, but I'm going to anyway. When we only see a 30 second clip on YouTube and then all these accusations about this person's character and ministry, and, you know, something ought to just tell us, and that just there ought to be a check in our spirit. And the first question I would ask is Have you talked to him personally about what he believes or what she believes before you're going on YouTube and getting millions of views? because of what you're accusing them of, have you actually talked to them or you've just, have you just listened to a soundbite? Conversations, they're so important. So rather than labeling someone, what if we just were able to talk with them? And in a church context, we can do that. This isn't celebrities, you know, it's more challenging when it's celebrities, but still, we gotta be careful about what we say, Right? Even on YouTube, I ought to be careful about that. What what if we express our concerns and we let them respond? Or, here's a little more close to them. When, When something happens in the church that we disagree with or our feelings get hurt, what is our instinctive response to that? Is it to go directly to the person with whom we have the disagreement and talk through it with them? That's one option. Or is it to have coffee or prayer with three of our closest friends and tell them about what that person did and what we experienced, and thus we're sowing negative seeds into their hearts. See, which of those two responses cultivates relational health, a mending of relationships, and which of those two responses undermines it? Now, here's the deal. What makes going to the person directly going directly to the person with whom we have a hurt or disagreement. What makes this so powerful is that often we don't have the full story. Can we all admit that? We don't have the full story. All we have is our interpretation of what they said or what they did. This is so important. It is applicable to all of our relationships. Marriage, children, it, it's a parent, it's applicable to all of our relationships. Whenever someone does or says something that hurts our feelings or that we disagree with, our instinctive, and all, this is humanity, every one of us. No one, no one is exempt. This is the way our brains work. Our instinctive subconscious reaction to that is to create a narrative in our mind to explain what they did. We tell ourselves a story about what they did. We're in the lobby, we walk past someone, we say hi, they don't say anything. What's the story we tell ourselves? They, they don't like me. They are so cold, I can't believe they're in leadership. They are so rude. They, yeah, that, that's, that's the story we're telling ourselves. But what if, what if the story we're telling ourselves uh, about this other person and, and the story we're telling other people about this person, what if it's not accurate? Maybe they didn't say hi because they just got new contacts and they just are crying all the time and they can't see. Or maybe they just put their dog down and they are, they're trying even getting to church. They just want to start crying because of the grief they're experiencing. And so that's all that they're thinking about as they're walking in the lobby. What if our story is wrong? And what's it worth to actually find out what the story really is? A while back, I saw a bumper sticker on someone's car in our parking lot, someone that I knew. And I immediately jumped to some assumptions about this person, and those assumptions became concerns that I was feeling. But I hadn't talked with this person. I was just sitting in the story that I was telling myself. Well, one day after church, most people left, and and, and there this person was. And I said, hey, could we chat? Could we just grab a chair? Could we chat for just a couple minutes? I had this question I wanted to ask you. We sat down, and I said, hey, I I noticed this bumper sticker, and and could could you explain to me what that is all about? And he graciously responded, and he explained what was behind the bumper sticker and why he was so passionate about all this. And I realized, Alan, the story you're telling yourself about this person was not accurate. My assumptions and my conclusions were wrong. The story I was telling myself about this person was not accurate. And I'm just thinking, what if I hadn't had that conversation? Guess what? I would still be carrying my story about them. I would still be carrying that, carrying in my heart those negative thoughts towards or about this person. So in this passage, Paul is giving us an incredible vision for relational health in the body of Christ. Look, conflicts are going to happen. Feelings are going to get hurt. Look, it just will. It'll happen in marriage. It happens in work and church as well. Conflicts happen. Feelings are going to get hurt. There are going to be disagreements about various things. And these things can, all of them can bring division, but they don't have to. They don't have to. If we're willing to right size our, ex- our preferences, be careful with our words, and discern together in healthy dialogue. Amen. <laughs> Amen. All right, let's stand. If you're able to stand, let's stand. We're going to enter into a response time, and what we've been doing here the last two weeks is just um, entering into this place and utilizing a prayer that... The church has prayed for centuries, asking the Holy Spirit to come. It's a prayer of responsiveness. It's, he already lives in us, but it's a prayer of just attentiveness to what he might be saying or doing in us. And, and another posture in this prayer, and I invite you to do this if you're comfortable doing it, is, to, is just to have your hands in front of you with your palms up. It's just a posture of receiving So I'm gonna pray this prayer and then we're gonna wait like 30 seconds or so. We're just gonna wait. And as we're waiting, I want to invite you to think about or let the Holy Spirit speak to you about your relationships. Are there any relationships that he's kind of putting his finger on? So we're gonna, let's just, let's just wait on the Lord and I'm gonna pray. So Holy Spirit, come. We welcome you. Just come, Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we have looked at your word. Is there any relationship in our lives that you want, you're putting a finger on right now? And let's just listen to the Lord. Is it, 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 maybe he's putting his finger on a relationship where you've made your personal preference a dividing wall. Or maybe you're labeling someone in such a way that is unfair and harmful without having a conversation with them, you're labeling them. Or maybe there's a story you're telling yourself about something someone did and you're convinced your story is true but you haven't talked with them about it. What if your story is not accurate? So Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. And as he brings to mind a relationship, let's just say yes to what he wants us to do in that relationship. God, we pray for healing. You are a God of reconciliation and restoration. We pray for healing and wholeness, relational wholeness, God. We pray that you would bring unity. You would bring oneness. Just come, Holy Spirit. So in a few moments, we're gonna be receiving the Lord's Supper, and, which is such a perfect response to Paul's words. One of the things that Paul will talk about later, we're gonna to get to it in chapter 11, he talks about the Lord's Supper, and part of the problem with the Corinthian church is they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unhealthy way. So people were coming early, and they were getting drunk, and they were eating all the bread, and it, they weren't receiving the Lord's Supper in a way that honored their relationships, and I was thinking about that as we are here, we, we read this passage, we study this passage, and, and now we're coming to the Lord's Supper, this, this table where Jesus has given his life for us. But a lot of, t- a lot of times we come to t- the table individually, and yes, that's how we receive Christ and all of that, but it also is a picture of the body embracing the gospel relationally. And that when we, per- when we partake in just a moment, that our heart is actually sensitive to and open to our relationships. And there's a humility. If we need to apologize, we need to go to a person. And I mean, Jesus even said this, if you if you, you have a gift, you're, you're in worship service, and you wanna take a gift to the altar, but you remember someone has something against you. You've done something to offend them. Jesus, leave your gift and go. I mean, Jesus, this whole idea of our relationships and worship and all of this, it's all, it's so integrated. And so I want to just invite us as as the worship team leads this song. When your heart is ready, I just want to invite you to come to a table. I think we have, yeah, we have tables at the back as well. Come to a table and take a piece of the unleavened bread, so it's gluten-free, and a a juice, and you can come to the side here. This is just open space. If you want to kneel up front here, you want to kneel on the stairs, you want to come and just stand in the Lord's presence and offer yourself, or you want to partake with someone you came with, a spouse or whatever, this is just open area here. But I want to invite you, as you come and you partake of the bread, which represents Jesus' body, and the juice, which represents his blood, let's... As we're ingesting that, let's ask him to fill our relationships with his humility and his wholeness and restoration. So Jesus, thank you for giving your life for us and for what your death on the cross and resurrection mean for our relational wholeness. So we welcome you, Holy Spirit, continue to move in in these next several minutes as we're worshiping, as we're responding. We love you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Continue to come and move. All right, the tables are open. Feel free at any point during worship to come to a table to partake. Thank you, Lord. We love you, God.